Hi, welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. On this week's episode, we're joined by Brahib Agabli of Williams College, the author of the new book, Moroccan Other Archives, History and Citizenship After State Violence, which was just published by Fordham University Press. Uh, Brahim, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Mark. This is an absolutely fascinating book, and it resonates with a lot of themes that I'm working on in, in my own book right now. And so I'm really delighted to have a chance to talk with you about it. Why don't we start by having you just tell us a little bit about the origins of the book and kind of what brought you to writing it and what the major contribution you see is. Uh, well, Mark, thank you so much for having me and thank you so much for this beautiful introduction. Uh, Moroccan Other Archives originated from my dissertation in comparative literature. Uh, I initially wrote this dissertation uh, to address only the question of the absence and reappearance of Moroccan Jews in literature and also the engagement with political imprisonment imprisonment in Morocco after 1999, which was the year Hassan II, uh, King Hassan II passed away. Uh, however, uh, uh, over the years, I also realized that I, I needed to add another, another dimension to it. And that's how I decided to add the Amazigh movement and its place in the Moroccan history. So the book in its entirety deals with the question of archive history, writing, citizenship, and loss during a very uh, well-known period of state violence in Morocco, which we call the Years of Lead, which extended from 1956 to 1991, 1999 uh, in, in, in the country. And uh, the book tries to go back to the origins of historical silences, unsilencing and the various ways in which history becomes really important for citizenship in Morocco. And the thematic focus there um, on absence and silence and but also trauma is something which I think you do a nice job of like tracing through these three big absences. Yes. Uh, so I think uh, th trauma theory or trauma writing in general is not something that's very developed in uh, the studies of North Africa and the Middle East. Uh, of course, there are a lot of scholars who are working on these questions, but their articulation is not necessarily as cutting edge as it is, say, in Europe or Latin America, where trauma studies are really highly sophisticated. Uh, so in uh, grounding this work in theories of trauma from the Holocaust, uh, the German experience, but also looking at Latin America with uh, political imprisonment, uh, uh, South Africa with the uh, TRC, uh, I try to uh, link uh, uh, the experience of Morocco to other experiences uh, and put them in dialogue with theories uh, of, of memory and archiving and history writing of uh, major uh, violent events, uh, but without losing sight of the particular context in which this was happening. Uh, so uh, you would say that historical or historiographical silence happened in like Argentina or in Chile, uh, in a different context, which cannot apply to Morocco, but you can find commonalities there. And looking at these three constituencies, meaning Moroccan, the disappearance or um, the immigration of Moroccan Jews, uh, the erasure of the Amazigh identity from the public sphere in Morocco, and then the extended experiences of political imprisonment in the country, uh, to me, these three categories are representative of a major component of the Moroccan society that for a long time has not been talked about mm -hmm. or uh, groups that were forgotten about in certain ways. When Again, when I say like silenced or forgotten about, not everybody is silenced, not everybody is forgotten about. But when you think about groups and you think about categories, you see, you talk about what's predominant. Uh, if you ask how many Moroccans before 1999 knew about political imprisonment, probably 
very few Moroccans knew. If you ask Moroccans about, oh, what happened to Moroccan Jews? Where did they leave? There were, there were Moroccans who knew, but the majority of Moroccans didn't know. Uh, the same thing with like Amazigh identity. Everybody knew that they were Amazigh or that they have an Amazigh identity, but they did not probably understand the politics that made such an important component of the Moroccan nation absent from the television, from the radio, from the public sphere. So uh, I, I, I see the response or the return of these groups after 1999 as the return of the repressed. The repressed all of a sudden emerges and occupies a large portion of cultural production, of discussions uh, within Moroccan society. And that to me signaled the importance of dealing with these questions and trying to understand what was behind them. And then what do they do uh, for the understanding of the way Mor the Moroccan state itself was trying to, to navigate its own past. Now, before we get into some of the, the, the specifics of it, you know, one of the contributions of your book is, of course, a methodological and theoretical one. It's the title of the book, The Other Archives. Uh, could you walk us through that a little bit and you know what you mean by that in terms of the difference between kind of the official state archives that historians traditionally draw upon and then this kind of amorphous concept of these other archives that enable a different type of history? Yes, thank you. You're getting to the heart of of, what the, of of the book itself, and the so when we're thinking about archives generally, and this is actually a misconception that keeps being recycled mm -hmm. uh, when we talk about archiving and history. When we think about archives, we're mainly talking about official archives. The definition of an archive is an an official holding in a guarded building upon which legitimacy has been conferred by a state or a, a person who has political authority. Mm -hmm. So if, if we take this very narrow definition of, of, the, of the archive, uh, this takes us to like the legitimacy of the statements as, as Foucault says. He says like uh, the archive is what gives legitimacy to what can be said. Uh, which also means that some statements cannot be legitimate because they don't have the political endorsement or they don't have the authority behind them that would make them legitimate. Same thing with Derrida, for example. When you think about Derrida's definition of the archive, he said that uh, they are consigned, they are house arrested, uh, that the archive is the archi or the archon, which is the house of authority. And this link between authority and archiving and the link between the legitimacy of what can be considered an archive and what cannot be uh, is very important to the way I, under I understand archives uh, and then why we need another archive. Uh, so if you take a place like Morocco, there has not been an, an official archive or there hadn't been an official archive until 2011 when Les Archives du Maroc was put in place. Uh, so between 1956 and, and 2011, Morocco literally did not have something called an, a national archive, despite the fact that Germain Ayash, uh, uh, one of the leading nationalist historians, he was Jewish, and he trained the majority of Moroccan historians after independence, since the 1960s, he was calling for the establishment of a national archive, uh, but that did that did not was not created, mm -hmm. and a lot of what be what could be considered archives in the narrow sense that they just said in the Foucauldian and Derridian sense of like a house of authority. Uh, didn't go into the archives. Uh, actually, what happened is like most of these documents were either taken to people's homes or destroyed. Uh, sometimes these archives actually were systematically destroyed just by the guards who were in charge of offices. They would be cold. They would feel cold and they would just grab a box and make fire and hit their bodies with it. And archives would be lost. And then also we should not forget the post, but the post-colonial period in Moroccan history, which is like a lot of nationalists thought that by destroying 
the French archives, they were achieving independence. Uh, so there was this like scorched land policy that led to the destruction of a lot of documents that had archival value and also a lot of uh, property, uh, individual property that belonged to the people who cooperated with uh, colonization like El Glawi and others whose property should have belonged to the Moroccan state as part of mm -hmm. uh, 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 the National Archive of, uh, of, of co during the colonial time. This property is also lost and is taken by individuals. And, you know, there was a lot of spoliation also that happened during that period. So there is that loss. So now we come to this notion of other archives, which I define as texts artifacts, alphabets, embodied experiences, toponymies, and inherited memories where stories of the excluded, the silenced, and the forgotten live in a ghostly state, ready to articulate historical loss, even as they are situated outside the margins of what is considered canonical. Uh, so other archives for me uh, is this space that's outside what's controlled by officialdom, but still speaks to historical experiences or experiences that have a historical value that are not necessarily granted the legitimacy that an official archive grants to statements in the Foucauldian sense. And this archive's important, other archive's importance really lies in its ability to speak from the outside of the canon. So if the canon has, suffers from all the lacuna that we know archives suffer from, like excision, silence, authority, control, uh, being guarded and all of that, it's like a fortress, the other archives should be the opposite, but it's so amorphous mm -hmm. that and and it allow it creates this low side or these low side for historical experiences to 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 emerge outside the force of silence and erasure. And as I said, like if you follow the art alphabets, for example, the Amazigh alphabet, Tifinab, it can take you into a very rich historical trajectory. You look at the embodied experiences of political prisoners and what they feel in their bodies and what they write about and how they think. And uh, then you can actually rewrite a historical experience from that. Uh, you look at toponymies, like Morocco is a very overlaid space with Arabic, French, and Amazigh toponymies. So if you look at this and dig deeper and think about what, what you can do with that, that's another archive that can allow you to um, recuperate or recover uh, histories or stories that would have never been allowed to, to be told or, which, or, or for which the space does not exist in what we call an official archive. Uh, so these are the, the, the right. ways in which they conceptualize and this. It, it, it shows up very differently in each of your three case studies. Um, I'm going to I'm going to deviate from what I told you we were going to do. I want, I want to flip the order just a little bit, because yeah. I think that your discussion of of Moroccan Jews through literature um, yeah. actually really speaks to what you're talking about, about this yeah. tension between history and memory and yeah. the value of these kinds of unofficial, but in a yeah. sense embodied, as you said, or grounded histories yeah. to kind of recover something which had been lost. Talk us through that a little bit in terms of okay. how Moroccan, how Moroccans, you know, these, these these authors that you're talking about have attempted to do history, but through this very different route. Absolutely. Thank you. That's a wonderful question. And uh, so just a little bit of context, uh, Morocco is one or was one of the countries that had the biggest Jewish population in North Africa and the Middle East. I think only Iraq could compare to Morocco. Like there was Morocco and then there was Iraq. Uh, and uh, uh, during Morocco's independence, some 250,000 Moroccan Jews lived in the country before they moved to Israel, Palestine, uh, Canada, France, and other parts of the world. However, uh, the context is, is really important because uh, a lot of Moroccans, even today, don't understand 
why Moroccan Jews left. If you go to villages, if you go to people now, like the numbers are decreasing because the older generation is dying down. But 20 years ago, when was I, when I was assigned to teach in villages in like Talwat and Iran-Nugdal and areas that had major Jewish populations, the first thing that people would tell you is like, that place used to be a Jewish synagogue. There is a Jewish cemetery there. Do you want to go see it? Oh, oh my God, we had Jewish friends. Uh, we were linked to them. We'd exchange foods. We would... So there was this very alive memory that you, you encounter in society. People talking fondly about a very important period of their lives that they shared with Moroccan Jews. And here I am as a younger Moroccan coming into this place that did not, that did not have any Jews. And they could not live that experience. Uh, it's just, I just couldn't live it. But worse than that, I did not have the knowledge necessary to understand why it happened. So uh, there was no teaching at school in the Moroccan curricula about Moroccan Jews. There was no knowledge that was disseminated that there was a historical context, the, war, the like the uh, the establishment of Israel in Palestine in 1948, uh, the the war in 1967, uh, the other war in 1973, uh, the internal dynamics within Morocco itself, different parties like uh, you know like the Istiqlal parties positions against uh, Moroccan Jews. Uh, there was nothing of that explained. So you just go about, you hear about Mor that Moroccan Jews lived in these places, uh, and then they left, and people did not understand why these all of a sudden, like your friends, your lovers, your business partners, just disappear. So that was the that was really the meat of this of these of these chapters, and then when you years later. I come to the United States and they do my, my coursework and they read novels and they look at literature and they discovered this corpus of works in which Moroccan Muslim novelists write about Jews. So what you really find in these books is a reconstruction of what they lived when they was in this village like of stories, people, older generations telling stories of how it was uh, when Jews still lived in the country. So I call this this literature or this very uh, this this subfield of Moroccan literature mnemonic literature or al-kitab al-dhakiratiya in Arabic, because I argue that these are novels that are based on memory to write about, reconstruct, and recover stories that have some grounding in reality but for which an archive doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. So if you really want to write the, the, the history of Moroccan Jews today, you can't find an archive in Morocco. Uh, to my knowledge, there is no archive for that. Like an archive of immigration, how did Moroccan Jews leave? Like what, what, what were the negotiations that happened? How, did that, how, how was that immigration organized? In what way? The, the, these are like absences and silences that exist in our history. On the other side, when you read Israeli historians, they actually have access to their archives. Mm -hmm. They write from their archives. They, they, they tell you stories, whereas the Moroccan has to rely on this other archive, which is memory, Mm -hmm. uh, personal experiences, uh, interviews, uh, probably, uh, you know, ethnographic work. But how does that all look when a novelist comes into the picture and decides to write a 400-page novel about different generations mm -hmm. of people from Fas, for example? Like, uh, if I take the, the novel An Elmancy, I am the Forgotten uh, uh, by Tazi, and he constructs this very long trajectory of Jewish existence in Fas. Or, for example, Hassan Aurid, who writes about Sintra. Sintra is a bar in Casablanca that used to be uh, that used to be a place where Jewish and Muslim 
you know, met each intellectuals met each other. They would have a drink and chat and all of that. And then Hassan Aurid creates a space in which he brings in all these characters that have, first of all, they were characters who existed in a reality. Most of them had real names and existed in the Moroccan reality and participated in political and intellectual action and all of that. And then, but also it's, 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 it's fictional works. And these are fictional works that help us revisit a period of time that a historian does not probably have the means to do, but in the absence of historiographical works in the like very um, narrow sense, we have the novel, we have a historical novel, we have somebody who did the mnemonic work it takes to at least shed light on this period. So in this context, there are two things that are really important in these chapters. There is the question of place, or what I call the emplacement of memory. And that's like the recovery of the synagogues, the recovery of bars, the recovery of like political spaces mm -hmm. that brought Jews and Muslims together and that created a link. Uh, uh, but all of this is really uh, a space where Jewish history of Morocco or post-colonial Jewish history of Morocco is recovered and in place and kind of like given a space in the post-independence nation where until that point in time, uh, historiography was really silent about it. And then you have intimacy, Jewish-Muslim intimacy. And under intimacy, you really get into like questions of like households, Jewish-Muslim families, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Jewish-Muslim lovers. And you get into these... Um, like uh, Shamma Oshtrit, like this this story about this woman Shamma Oshtrit by Ibrahim Al Hariri, in which he tells the story of this woman who had who married a, a Muslim man. Then, in the context of war, they separate. She takes the daughter and she leaves the son in Morocco. The son grows up Muslim, and the daughter the daughter grows up Jewish, uh, and it creates this rift within within this family. And I actually asked the author, I was like, "Is this grounded in any sort of reality?" He's like, "This is a real person. This story existed in reality, and and uh, and." Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, it existed yeah. in reality and I fictionalized it. So, yeah, so place and intimacy. And then I take this as a segue into thinking about this prolonged Morocco that was lost. Uh, and my insight there is really uh, Abdullah Al-Arwi, who writes that a society without its minorities becomes totalitarian, <laughs> literally. He says, like, it, it, the the yeast of democracy is diversity and diversity in many ways. But then once a state or a society becomes monolithic, it really loses its ability to renew or to kind of like become democratic. At least like that was my, my interpretation of Larawi. Yeah, and Larawi, that's a, it's a, it was an interesting engagement with Larawi on that. But one of the things which is so interesting in the way you frame this is it's also quite concrete, is the number of Moroccan Jews who were part of key political parties, who were part of civil society. And then when they left, you link that to the consolidation of power under Hassan II. Yes, and, and that's like why this project of monolithization for me uh has been really important, like uh, because there were forces within Moroccan society, like political parties, Abdullah Ibrahim, the prime minister, uh, uh, and others who were like, we cannot let Moroccan Jews leave because these are Moroccan citizens. Uh, these are Moroccan citizens. Uh, the, the, these are part of us. And and there were people who who saw what that meant for the future of the country in terms of uh, the consolidation of power, in terms of like uh, what would come later. And I think, of course, nobody should force anyone to stay where they don't want to stay. I mean, that's that's just mm -hmm. nobody should withhold anybody's passport. Nobody should 
just to get because these are questions that would come up like in in the literature they are very tricky uh, uh, but in the meantime I think uh, the the political parties who were opposed to Jewish immigration from Morocco were opposed to it because they saw in uh, Jews allies who would have been uh, contributors to creating an entirely different Morocco, a democratic, diverse, uh, multi-religious country, as it was. It's not just like, it, it, it has always been like that until the departure of the majority of Moroccan Jews, then the country becomes monolithic. And they think monolithizing the country was also part of the dictatorial project that was coming after 1961. Because after 1961, Hassan Segan just allows everybody to, to migrate uh, and, you know, negotiates all these, um, you know, deals that facilitate immigration. Uh, but nobody has asked these questions before. So people were just like, uh, there was there was a push. There were pressures from uh, the uh, you know like Jewish organizations from the United States and Europe, and the Moroccan authorities caved in, and immigration happened. However, nobody has looked at the internal dynamics. What were the benefits for the construction of authoritarianism uh, uh, that happened after this uh, this migration? Uh, and I think. Uh, this this is where I get at when when also you like you read Moroccan about this period like very few journalistic articles like uh, like um, uh, uh, somebody wrote a very good article in Litton Moderne I, I forget his name now but uh, in which he actually contests these moves but and and provides some really insightful comments from 1965 uh, about why that was happening and how Moroccan internal politics are were imbricated into these decisions. And so for me, the just like in a nutshell, the encouragement, again, encouragement is not forcing. The encouragement of immigration was part of the construction of authoritarianism in Morocco. Now, as a political scientist, I mean, I... I'm fascinated by all of this. And, you know, it really, you know, it, it it resonates in all kinds of interesting ways. But I do want to just like come back to very briefly, just the sense that the, the kind of other archive that you're talking about and the use of literature as a form of history, it also, as you mentioned earlier on, it really does illuminate things in a very different way, in a very human way. You talk about intimacy, Something that's really, I can't remember which novel it was, but there was the passage about just like the foods, the tastes. I used to I used to eat these foods and now those foods are gone and I can never encounter yeah. them again. Like that sort of thinking about absence and loss is something which might be unique to this kind of other archive. Absolutely. And I think the sense, you know, like in, in those of us who work on memory studies, like we talk about smells, we talk about... Uh, you know, tactile aspects of things. Uh, there is a branch of history, of course, that's interested in in sounds and all of the musics and and uh, soundscapes and culinary, the color culinary memory and all of that. And I think uh, there are two in Morocco. There are two cases. There is uh, Abdel uh, Kabir Khatibi, who writes in one of his books about like how for him the Jew always like was associated with the memory of food, uh, like that. there is that one. But there is also uh, in An Element Seed, the one I talked about, uh, I Am the Forgotten, which is about fast. And it talks about like all these foods and uh, the shared cuisine and, and, and all of that. And I think the novel, what the novel has the possibility to do is the possibility to project and expand on things in the way they might have happened uh, more than a historian can do because a historian, uh, a historian's job is to recover the past based on archival evidence and to make historical statements, of course, based on factual uh, evidence uh, that 
people can go back to and reconstitute. So uh, doing history in this way is, is different than writing a novel. But I think what the novel does is create this possibility to imagine what, what also could have happened instead of only focusing on what happened. So when a novelist hears a story from somebody, like I said, like Ibrahim al-Hariri, who writes Shamma or Shitrit, and this is a real person who lived in Casablanca, who, talk, who took her daughter to Israel and left her son with his dad in Casablanca. Uh, that's a story. But how do you fill in the gaps of this story? How do you imagine this existence in 1967? How do you think about dialogue and conversations and events? That's all up to you. Uh, and that helps us to think about what probably it looked like uh, without saying, oh, that's that's what it really looked like. So this is this is where the difference is. But for us, it it records and re recovers a very significant portion of a past for which until now, I don't know that an archive exists. We'll be back after the break with more conversation with Rahima Gable. Welcome back to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. We're speaking with Brahim Al-Gabli of Williams College about his book, Moroccan Other Archives. And at before the break, we were talking about the absence of Moroccan Jews and the way that literature was used in order to recapture their presence. Um, you have two other major case studies, two other major absences in Moroccan society. And let's talk about those now. The first of them is the kind of the long-term absence of, of the Amizag in, in, in kind of the Arab or the Arab Islamic construction of Morocco as a post-colonial state. And you talk about the activism that brings them back into the public sphere. And so tell us a little bit about this and why you consider this an other archive and how this, you know, kind of resonates within Moroccan society and politics. Thank you. That's uh, that's definitely a very important component of of the book. Uh, Amazigh people or Imaziran are the indigenous people of North Africa. They have a million, a millennial presence in um, through, throughout the region, starting from the Canary Islands to Southwest Egypt, if if you want. And this land is called North Africa, or most recently in the last, say, 30 years, Amazigh activists have been, have been calling it uh, Tamazgha, Tamazgha or the Amazigh homeland. Uh, after, after the post-colonial period in North Africa, uh, Imaziran were literally marginalized in their home countries uh, for very specific reasons. Uh, I, I'm sure you've heard about the Berber policy that France uh, put in place to uh, literally dissociate or divorce Imaziran, the Berbers, from Arabs. And here the terms are really important. Arab in this context really literally meant Muslim. Mm -hmm. uh, so Amazigh was considered probably heterodox, very close to European civilization, civilizable, easier to integrate into the colonial project, whereas the Arab was the quintessence of Islam, uh, and Islam was literally impossible to uh, civilize. Uh, so that's very that's a very important context. Uh, when nationalism appeared in North Africa in the 1930s, it was against this French policy uh, uh, that favored Imaziran or Berbers as people who could be assimilated into French citizenship and French and French civilization. So what colonialism did is to actually strengthen Arabism and Islam because it created a chain reaction to its Berber policy. However, what happened is that in the post-independence period, Imaziran were confused with the French. So literally anybody who was defending 
uh, Berber identity or Amazigh identity was just told that you were a colonialist or you were somebody who was entrenching or implementing French colonial policy or even worse, were accused of being an agent of colonialism. And of course, as this was happening, state policies were also being put in place in Algeria after 1962 in, uh, and in Morocco after 1956. And these policies defined the, the countries or the states as Arab Islamic. So Morocco is an Arab Islamic state. Algeria is an Arab Islamic state. But the irony is that the, the Berbers or Imazirin fought for independence. They were actually the ones who were fighting more than everybody else. The, the Berber areas in Morocco were the last to be colonized in, in the Southeast. Like uh, Fas was colonized in 1912, but the Rashidia and like the, the Moroccan Southeast was not colonized until 1934. So there is this like 22 year resistance to colonialism. That the race. Yes, that Imazirin actually fought and died to, to defend their independence. But then in the post-independence period, they were just erased. They were Everybody was called Arab. Everybody was called Muslim. And we were done. So for a period of time, the television, the radio, uh, like even the little bit of institutions that the French put in place, with which recognized Amazigh identity and language and produced school curricula and research, were shut down, were shut down because of this scorched land policy of Arabization that will have really nefarious effects on Amazigh communities and led to the decrease of Amazigh speakers. However, in the 19, in 1966, uh, a, a new generation of educated Amazigh would emerge and they would become very aware of their identity and they would start a movement for the recognition of Amazigh linguistic and, and cultural rights. What's really fascinating about these people is that they come from two schools. There were those who were mainly trained in Arabic. So they were really very strong Arabists, mm -hmm. but with a very strong sense of Amazigh identity. And the Francophone, those who were trained in the modern French Francophone schools or, or like the Muslim schools in Morocco and took the French trajectory, but were also very aware of their identity. So the specificity of the Moroccan context really is that this Amazigh, this Amazigh movement crystallized under the name of the association the Moroccan Association for Research and Cultural Exchange which was formed in 1967. Mm -hmm. And this association brought together teachers. These, these are mainly teachers from all the different parts of Morocco, mainly from the Sous and the Southeast, who were studying in Marrakesh and Rabat. And they coalesced around this project to advance very small, really very small ideas, like to advance Amazigh, but they never called it an Amazigh association. They, they worked on folklore, they worked on culture, but underneath the idea was to create a space where Amazigh identity was, uh, was, uh, was discussed and defended. Uh, but what's really fascinating, again, about this group of, of, of people is that they were in dialogue with political parties, they were in dialogue with the, the Académie Berber in Paris. And early on, Amazirité or Amazir identity was a transnational or uh, it was a, a transnational fact, but it was also a, a cause that they understood should go through the internal institutional setups in order to convince the larger society to accept that Imaziran are part of this nation. And their motto was, has always been Al-Wahda Fitanawa. Uh, unity in diversity, unity in diversity, which meant really that Imaziran are not here to say that Arabic speakers do not belong. 
It's like, how do we create a united, larger nation where everybody could belong, where we have this national unity with our diversities, with the regional, linguistic, religious, which, which I think today, thinking about it like 50 years later, was a highly advanced way of thinking about cultural diversity and advocating for cultural rights. So this project tackled several things, and I think I will just address this question of other archives here. They tackled, so they there was advocacy, mm -hmm. which is talking to institutions. There was also recording cultural heritage. There was a very strong awareness that if we don't record our songs, our chants, our stories, you know, our mythology, it's going to be lost over time. So they were constituting this other archive through civic engagement, traveling miles and miles to go talk to a musician or a woman who know they, they know can tell stories very well. And uh, things that were consigned to memory, they, they realized, no, memory is not is faltering. People will die. People will become old. We have to constitute this archive. And they created holdings like using cassettes, uh, writing things down, publication. They also created these bulletins or these like internal journals, what we call gray literature, to the, in which they circulated what they what they recovered and then disseminated it among their networks. Uh, and, and then also there was the project of conferences. So when, when you're building something, you also have to share it with people. So there were several, what they call summer universities or summer schools, uh, where people would come together and discuss their ideas, think about projects, brainstorm, and this happened throughout the 1960s until the 1990s. The 1990s, as a political scientist, scientist, of course, you know, was the era of human rights. That's that's when human rights become very central to uh, international relations, to aid, to indigeneity. And Imaziran decided, okay, now we have to launch a supranational uh, activism. And they attend UN, UN conferences, and they come back with the idea of indigeneity in 1993, and that becomes like one of the central components of Amazigh activism. So now Amazigh activism moves from being an intra-Amazigh issue to an issue that's very visible in the public sphere, requiring reforms to the news, requiring reforms to the public sphere, requiring reforms to education curricula, requiring teaching the language, uh, and requiring specialized institutions that would be in charge of Amazigh language and culture. It, this, of course, takes some time to materialize, but what happens is the favorable international situation plus domestic activism leads to the proliferation of cultural production around Temazicht, the transformation of the public sphere. And I will fast forward in 2001, the establishment of IRCAM, the L'Institut Royal pour la Culture Amazigh, the Royal Institute for Amazigh Culture, created this major shift in the way Morocco today exists because the Moroccan public sphere now is trilingual, like you walk in Rabat or Casablanca or Tangier, everything, signage, you know, storefronts, the fronts of administrations in the country, everything is written now in Arabic, Tifina, and French. And for me, that's like the strongest recognition of the existence of this other history, other memory, other identity, that can be captured in uh, the other archive that's created through Amazigh activism in the country. That was one of the most interesting parts of it, actually, was the standardization of the language and then its like appearance throughout in a very physical, embodied way, again, staying with the themes of the book. Um, but you point out that it also creates something of a distancing effect because most or many Moroccans are actually not really conversant in this language. Yes. 
and and that's a challenge right because uh the standardization of the language we we moved from orality to standardization we moved from uh, a language that's only spoken at home in intimate spaces among friends to a language that's now supposed to be a language of culture a language of academic engagement, a language of analysis, a language of science. Language and of road signs. <laughs> yeah, right? And that road signs. And that's a language that requires work. So the question, and I, I love this, like Ahmad Asit said this, is like, well, when you're learning French or English, you're 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 ready to make the effort it takes to learn this language. It's the same with Tamazigh. Like you have to make the effort to learn the language to be able to understand the public sphere, to be able to read, to be able to engage in what's written in the language. And I'm a very optimistic person, personally, and I think that the shock that Moroccans feel when they walk in their cities now, and like, because like, you know, there, was, there has been like historical complacency, like people are just like, oh, I know French, I know Arabic, this is, it's very easy to navigate, but now you have this other language that's added to your, uh, to your visual landscape, you see it and you feel ignorant because you can't read it. And I hope that in some people, this would actually spur the desire to learn and say, oh, no, I can't live in this space and don't know what's written. Uh, uh, so I think over time with the generalization of uh, the teaching of Tamazigh, because now like it's going to be generalized more and more schools that teach in Tamazigh, more and more teachers are being trained. Despite all the problems, of course, that we know about, this will create, I don't know, like in 40 years, 30 years, 20 years, it is going to create a situation where a lot of Moroccans are conversant in Tamazigh, will be able to read Tamazigh, at least have literacy levels in Tamazigh. And they think that's really, that would speak volumes uh, about, Morocco's ability to reconcile itself with its history and with its, its identity, which I think is very important. Amazigh activism has never been about exclusion. It has never been about, no, we don't want anyone here. No, it's, it's always been about, we all share this space. We all belong to this nation state. We're all citizens of this land, but some citizens have more than others in terms of recognition of their language and culture. And what we want is to really be a multilingual uh, society, a multilingual, uh, 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 or a society that whose uh, multiple identities are based on multilingualism and recognition of different uh, identities. It's, all, it's incredibly interesting. And uh, we're gonna challenge your optimism now by going to uh, the final chapters of the book, where you're talking about the political prisoners and the Tazmamar prison. And and it, it's not that it challenges the optimism, although it makes for very grim reading at times, but it tells a fascinating story about the way in which testimonies, fiction, um, a whole set of things bring this enforced absence into the public but combined with, and here's where it resonates with things I work on, you know, with like actual state-driven initiatives um, to after after Muhammad VI takes power, um, you know. So to talk about this a little bit in terms of kind of this third pillar of of your of your of your book. Yeah, absolutely, uh, and I'm glad to hear that. Uh, like these questions uh, overlap with your research uh, agenda. Uh, the uh, like Tazmamart, Tazmamart as a location has been the epitome of Morocco's national trauma. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't think there is another name that you can mention in Morocco today and people just understand it off the beat. And that would be Tazmamart. You say Tazmamart, it's the equivalent of the gulag <laughs> it's the equivalent of a sinister space that catalyzes an imaginary of violence and evokes the most horrendous horrific violations of human rights that happened in in in, in moroccan history so tazma mart was this prison that was created in 1973 uh 
in the aftermath of two consecutive coup d'etat against Hassan II in 1971 and 1972. Uh, what happened is, so the coups happened, people were sentenced to jail by a military court as they were, so the ones who had less than two years, they were released, but the ones who were sentenced to longer than two years stayed in jail, and there were 62 of them. Uh, 58 were, uh, yeah, there were 62 of them. And one July day, these people were just like whisked off the, the, the prison cells and taken to an unknown location. Mm -hmm. So they just disappeared. And when the families came to, to the legal prison where they were jailed to ask about them, the, the jailers were just like, we don't know where they, where they went. Like it's, it's literally like people just disappearing. And of course, you can disappear in a state without leaving traces. So some guards talked to families, told them, well, we heard that they were taken to this area. It's called it's called Tasman Mart. And, uh, but 1970 three would be the birth of Tazmamart. And Tazmamart would continue to exist until 1991. So 58 people were taken to this jail. And when 18 years later they were released, only 28 survived. 30 of them all died uh, under the watch of the Moroccan uh, authorities. Uh, but Tazmamart says a lot about how human rights activism works and how this other archive works. Uh, so against a willingness to annihilate, to entirely wipe out 58 person, 58 people from existence, there was resistance and there was complicity. I think resistance was the understanding by the prisoners that if they don't tell their stories, they're gone. Nobody would ever care about them and nobody would ever do anything to help them. And then complicity, I I, I, I would not actually say, uh, uh, I, I think I need a better word, like not complicity, but probably synergies. I would say synergies. Uh, synergies in the sense that if you are resisting from inside prison, you also need other people to create this space of cooperation where your resistance mm -hmm. is supported and where it actually leads to being fruitful. Uh, uh, so, and what happens here is that some guards had this humanity in them that they were able to smuggle letters from prison. And then these letters would actually have an afterlife because people would smuggle them outside to Europe. And in Europe, there is this amazing woman, uh, uh, Christine Dor Serfati, the wife of Abraham Serfati, who was also in jail at that time for his uh, Marxist-Leninist activism. He was sentenced to life in prison. And Christine Dor Serfati takes on the task of saving the people who were jailed in Tasman. So you have a state that disappears people, people who are disappeared, who refuse to die like dogs, as they say. And then you have uh, these humane guards who take the risks mm -hmm. of smuggling their letters out. And then these letters being taken to Paris or sent to Paris or what, it, it depends on, 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 on what you read. And then in Paris, there is this, again, human, uh, humanitarian and human rights network that takes another archive of disappearance from the jail cell, creates another archive of activism in Europe, and all of that comes back to Morocco to haunt the Moroccan state in multiple ways. And I think one of the strongest ways that they discuss in the book is uh, Gilles Pierrot's book, Notre Ami le Roi, and how just amazing it focuses on Tazmamart and evokes the memory of the Holocaust and like when he talks about like I thought that that would that this kind of like behavior would never exist again after 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 witnessing the Holocaust. So I, I think 
what has memory did is that it catalyzed different memories. It, it mobilized different memories to mobilize empathy. And it created this larger network in which a very situated uh, local uh, disappearance experience gets integrated into larger systems of uh, meaning that really give it this um, strength and ability to, to resonate with people. So I found an American poet, for example, who wrote a poem about it, about Desmond Mary. Uh, filmmakers who are interested in Desmond Mary. Novelists who are interested in Desmond Mary. Uh, Moroccan novelists and Arab novelists who write about Desmond Mary. People are writing in Arabic and people are writing in French uh, about Tazma Mert. And Tazma Mert becomes this stirrer or this catalyzer of a human rights imagination that gives me the opportunity to articulate other archives as, as this embodied experience, but also as this continuously proliferating cultural production that emerges from different locations uh, beyond Morocco itself. Mm -hmm. And you talk about, you have like the actual prisoner testimonies, uh, yeah. and you have like novels and stories that are written based on those testimonies. You mentioned one of the, I, I couldn't believe this, he's one of the books that sold over 100,000 copies yes. in a country that with 3,000 is a bestseller. Um, yeah. And it's just fascinating in terms of how this becomes such a culturally resonant frame. Absolutely. Tazmemert is the most selling uh, topic in Morocco, even today. Like a book about Tazmemert would sell quickly because, as I was saying, Tazmemert has entered the Moroccan psyche mm -hmm. as this horrendous experience that rumors and that state rumors itself kind of like created because if somebody, if a state authority says, says to you, I'm going to send you to Tazmemert, you know what that means. You know, it mm -hmm. means I'm, uh, you're going to be tortured. You're going to, uh, and imagine this. That, you're going to be disappeared. You'll see. You're going to be disappeared. Yeah. yeah. And in the 1990s, I mean, these are phrases that people would hear. It's, it, uh, I, I, I hope that, that this doesn't exist today or that people don't say that today. But in the 1990s, if an agent of authority says, I'm going to send you to Tasman Mert, you, you know what that means. That means that you're going, no trace will be left of you and you will just uh, dis disappear. So, this idea of disappearance and this idea of, as as one, as Abdullah Hamoudi, like in my discussion with him says, he said like, Tazmamat kind of like uh, instigates imagination. Uh, it, it, it has all the ingredients that allows an imaginative mind to really engage with it and to take, so you take most of the of the narratives, uh, like the one you you referred to, Ahmad Marzouk's uh, uh, book, Cellule uh, Dis, Cell Number Ten. Uh, that this book sold over a hundred thousand copies, and there are so many pirated copies too. Like it's just it's available online. People download it online, but it still sells, and it's probably the one of two books that that are still printed continuously about Tazmemert. And you find it in the streets in Rabat, it's sold everywhere, uh, but it's never exhausted, you know, because the story still resonates with people and think about it. But then people take these real lived stories and use them as blueprints from uh, imagination. I, I mean, we know Tahar Ben Jilun's C'est Aveuglante Absence de Lumière, which kind of like was mired in a big scandal yeah. Uh, when Ben Bean kind of like uh, had a fight with him, and then Ben Ben Bean himself writing Tazma Moch, uh, Tazma Death, which has been translated, I think, in 2021 into English. So Tazma Mert has really entered into this like perpetual movement of literary creation, but also into a movement of translation and transnational activism. Uh, and that, I trace that like in Radwa Ashur's book, mm -hmm. um, um, I forget the title now, Radwa Ashur's book in which she talks about like these transnational, uh, in English it's translated as blue, blue lorries, 
uh, but in Arabic, it's really, uh, the title is Faraj. And Faraj is the name of a pigeon that Marzouki finds in his cell and raises in his cell. And Faraj means denouement or a happy solution. Uh, and yeah, so there are so many levels of analysis that we can come to about Tazim and Mert. Uh, but uh, as a whole, uh, what you can say is Tazim and Mert has come to symbolize the years of lead and also to symbolize the uh, force of literature and media and testimony uh, as components of this local and transnational other archive of human rights violations. But then, but then there's the actual kind of literal official archive, which is then created through this series of truth and reconciliation commissions, and you and you and you track those and the limitations that they face, but also the actual you know output that they produce, which kind of takes these kind of these Samizdat underground testimonies and makes them official in a way. Yes, absolutely. And that's the fascinating part about that is this um is how you move from disappearance to reappearance and how, and how something that was denied. So Hassan Segund would say that secret jails were just figments of imagination of the enemies of the Moroccan nation. But then uh, after 1991, this whole thing vanishes and it, it becomes like these people reappear. But in 2004, when uh, Mohammed VI puts in place the ERC, the Equity and Recon Reconciliation Commission, one of the goals of the ERC is to create archives of these violations. So investigations become archives. Mm -hmm. But within the larger, uh, the larger framework of its uh, outcomes as the committee, uh, the intention was to create an archive to preserve memory and history. Although the phrasing does not really specify which memory or which history, it just says to preserve memory. Uh, and in English, of course, this is an incomplete sentence because you always come and say the memory of what, <laughs> you know? Right. Uh, but anyway, so these, these testimonies that were collected by trained professionals and recorded become dossier, and this dossier become the justification for compensation. So actually, in order to be compensated for viol the violations you were subjected to, no, you have to become a dossier. You have to become an archive. And in exchange for the archive, you get a check. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and then you have a period of time when your narrative was available to you. So... Uh, you can see your narrative, the way the state rewrote it and created your dossier and all the pieces of evidence that were in your dossier. There was a period of consultation when you're allowed to see that. But then that was shut down. And the, the law of the archive, as we were saying, in 2011, that was passed in 20, the creation of Les Archives du Maroc in, 20, in 2011, but the law itself was passed, I think, in 2006. It, it includes a period during which you cannot consult archives of individuals who are still alive. So we enter into the realm of official mm -hmm. archives, which you no know, put limitations on this story. So the, the, the archives created by the ARC are no longer consultable. They are no preserved in the Les Archives du Maroc, and they enter into this period of, I think, 100 years. Oh, wow. <laughs> so so they, are, they will not be accessible to me or to my generation. Uh, and then you get to why it's important to think about other archives. Uh, because now, yes, we didn't have an archive for 50 years. Now we have one, but we have this other dimension, which is really difficult to navigate, which is, Every official archives has comes with periods during which documents are not going to be available for consultation, either because they contain secrets of defense, they contain uh, medical certificates of individuals, or because they contain personal information. And they think the the period 
ranges between 50 and 100 years, depending on the type of information that's contained in these, in these files. So the future generation will have to wait until 100, uh, like uh, I don't 2200. I don't know even how long. So so 2120 probably or something. That's when they will be able to see some of these documents. So these people will be long gone, and uh, uh, that's why other archives are so important to theorize and articulate and use while this uh, dreamed of archive <laughs> will come alive for the future because we can't stop writing history without having an official archive. Like we have to start. And I, and, and I think Susan Slamovich is, is the lucky one who uh, was able to to see these some of these documents, and uh, she did a brilliant uh, article about it about about it, and she talks about the dream in the archive, which I really I really loved. Well, thanks, Brahim. There's so much more that we could talk about, but uh, I think we're out of time. So we've been speaking to Brahim Al Gabli about his brand new book, Moroccan Other Archives. Yeah.